Welcome back, everybody, to the Building the Baseline podcast. My name is James McCool on Twitter as Paydirt underscore DFS. I am one of the people in the daily fantasy sports community that uh, puts together cool metrics and does things with algorithms and helps people with numbers. And this podcast is something that I wanted to put together to talk to people in the daily fantasy community, the season-long fantasy community, you know, the fantasy community for sports, uh, talking to pros and Joes alike. Last week, I had on Derek Cardi, the creator of the bat projection system for baseball. And this week, I am joined by David Hess, a amateur DFS player. David, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good, dude. My internet's back up. I'm uh, back home with my 40 monitors running and doing all the things I need to do. So I'm feeling better than I was earlier. Um, Let's get right into things. So why don't we go into a little bit about you, you know, who you are and what you do, like what you do for work, if it's not just DFS, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, So outside of DFS, I work for a Um, real estate title search company doing closings and settlements and those kinds of things. Um, Mostly making sure money goes the right place and everything goes smoothly when you move into your new house. It's a pretty boring job, but it does afford me the time to play DFS at a level that I like to play it at, at least. And it's good money and it, it was a pretty good field. And so... I'm happy with it. I'm not quite as happy as if I was doing DFS full time, but happy with it. Yeah, I, I understand <laughs> that. My uh, my fiance is a real estate photographer, actually. So that's a little bit of a uh, break in the fourth wall there. She takes all the pictures for the stuff that goes up on the sites for you to get the money across to. That's sweet. Yeah, I I actually want set out to be a real estate agent and somehow ended up here and just never, never left. <laughs> well, hey, I mean, as long as it works for you, um, do you still like want to be a real estate agent eventually, or are you just happy where you're at? I'm happy where I'm at. I yeah. ended up liking it a little more than uh, I thought I would, and like I said, it, it kind of gives me the freedom to do the things that I want. Um, it's a regular nine to five job, so I have plenty of time to like get up and go to the gym. And um, I used to I used to play with the stock market a little bit, so. It, you know, give me a time to get up and look at that in the pre-hours and all those things. So it, it kind of checks off all the boxes for me. So like uh, like nine to five, Monday through Friday, right? Like you just have a regular Monday through Friday job? Yep. Nice. That's actually, it, you know, you, you say that you want to be a, uh, you know, that, that you're happy with where you're at, but you'd rather be playing DFS. And I will tell you from somebody who has worked in this industry for a while, there are times when you want to give up DFS for a regular nine to five. I absolutely believe it. There's times that I just don't want to play DFS at all. And... <laughs> <laughs> right. It, Cause it's hard. It's stressful. And there's, you know, you, your uh, allowance of being able to get up at, you know, whatever time you get up 7am, go to the gym or look at the stock market, go to work, secure that paycheck so that you can make sure that you make rent so you can buy your groceries, stuff like that. I mean, you don't always get that when you are a pro DFS player, especially if you don't have great bankroll management. Yeah. I mean, those downswings are hard, even at, you know, where the small amount I play. So, I mean, if I was losing thousands and thousands of dollars and 
in a couple months, that would definitely be a, a tough thing to go through. It's a really, I think, underrated aspect of playing DFS because, you know, everybody just thinks that if you win, you win all the time. Um, getting through those downswings when you're, when you're playing high dollars is um, definitely, in my opinion, one of the higher or tougher aspects. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you you mentioned that people think that it's winning all the time when in fact it is actually losing most of the time. Uh, most pro DFS players are not winning all the time. They're they're living off of bigger hits. There was one notorious um, screenshot in the Twitterverse over the NFL season. One of the pro DFS players had like a four hundred thousand dollar downswing or something like that towards the end of the season. And the only reason why he was able to maintain was because of a couple bigger hits at the beginning of the season. And that's kind of stuff that you don't see. I mean, you always see the screenshots and you always see the big money on Twitter. You see the, uh, the six figure hits and stuff like that, but you don't realize, well, most people don't realize that as you're playing, uh, if you lose 60% of the time playing 10 K a night, then those numbers rack up as well. Yeah, it's unbelievable. I was actually going to bring him up. You said Notorious, and Ricky D was the first one I thought of. Um, didn't realize that it was the same one you were talking about. Um, when I saw that whole thing go around, he was talking about it, how he was just barely positive despite the fact that he had, like, two huge wins earlier in the season. And, I, you know, some people really can't imagine what it's like to lose, like, you know, ten, fifteen thousand $15,000 in a day. All they see is, you know, the the fifty thousand, hundred thousand dollar screenshots, and don't realize how much how much money you lost getting to that point. Yeah, it's it's really really brutal. But um, you know, that's that's the breaks, and that's why it's it's actually one of the reasons why I wanted to have my own site and be a content creator rather than be a pro DFS player. Um, but we can get into that a little bit later on. Let's let's talk a little bit more about your background. So. You said that you wanted to be a real estate agent, and now you are in real estate in that industry, like, as your nine to five. But when you were younger, like, what what was kind of your background? You know, like, were you a sports guy? Were you a nerd? Were you, you know, somewhere in between? What did you do when you were younger? Um, it was actually kind of a roller coaster. So up until freshman year of high school, I was a sports guy. I played, like, three sports all growing up. Um. And one summer, I just got tired of it and quit every. Um, then through high school, I was mainly um, just playing video games. I planned on going to college. Um, but once I got there, it really just didn't feel like it was for me. I'm really bad at like the strict like take notes, exam, take notes, exam, take notes, exam. So that wasn't really a route that I wanted to take. Um, but actually through all of that, I was pretty set that I was going to um, invest in real estate. I spent a lot of time um, learning the different markets and the different things that you should put into um, a house to make it easily flippable and, and all of those things. And so my best path to that I thought was going to be to be a real estate agent. Um, so, you know, I studied into all that stuff, but ended up doing title closings instead and down the line, whether it's from saving up money or winning in DFS or whatever it be, I would still like to come back around and invest in real estate. 
And before we started the podcast, you mentioned that you're in kind of a small city. Where do you actually live? Uh, Hagerstown, Maryland. It's getting bigger. Um, you know, when I first moved here as a kid in 2002, there was almost nothing here. Um, but it, it's gotten into a, a bigger city and, and more um, large place, but it's nothing crazy still. Um, I'm about 40 minutes out of Baltimore and an hour and a half from Washington, D.C. Uh, Baltimore, man. Orioles fan? Uh, when I watch baseball, I mean, I, I play DFS for baseball, but I don't really like it or watch it. That's how I feel about most sports, actually. <laughs> um, football is the only sport that I actually, like, really enjoy watching. Shit, dude, I don't, I don't watch any sports anymore. And I'm, <laughs> I'm like somebody who should watch sports. Everybody gets mad when I say that. But I think that sports, in terms of, yeah, especially for the work that I do, watching sports doesn't help me. Because all it does is just make me think, oh, yeah, that person looks better than the numbers are saying. Or that person looks worse than the numbers are saying. And then I develop some stupid anchoring bias on, like, Todd Gurley or something. And I start to make <laughs> bad decisions. Like, I, I think that people underrate the benefits of not actually watching the sports that you play. Yeah, I actually um, – I just placed 21st in the – um, five dollar, five dollar, hundred thousand entry golf tournament. I had never played like golf or anything or watched any golf, and I played a whole bunch of golfers that everybody says is garbage apparently, and uh, placed twenty first because I was just kind of like looking at the numbers and everything and put them together. And at, at the end of it, they're like, well, "I have no idea why you played all these these people, but it really worked for you." Like Pat Perez, and uh, so I, I agree. I tend to take a more numbers-based approach myself um back for baseball season your um your model is actually very helpful the x the x hr that's right about when i was first starting to play serious dfs and um i i think that i've taken more of an analytical approach but nothing like you know you or Derek hardy or people like that i would like to get there though oh yeah you'll, I've been, you'll get there eventually yeah, I've been actively studying um, the range of outcomes and probability and, and all of those things, hoping to at some point build my own small model to um, measure leverage. That's that's my like all time my all goal. <laughs> your, your own small model to put me out of business. That sounds like a great great <laughs> thing for you to do. Um, <laughs> So before you got into the job that you had now, what were some previous jobs that you had? Uh, it was actually my first one. I'm 23 now. Um, I started there working part-time when I was 16, I, but I just always thought that it was going to be like a side job. And it was one of the reasons I dropped out of college because I was working there as like an admin. I did like the food and um, answered phone calls and stuff like that. Nothing serious, but when I was in college, after I realized that I was struggling, they actually had a full-time job opening up, and I dropped out of college and took it. Well, that's pretty cool that you didn't have to have, like, a shitty retail job where you sold, like, skateboards to seven-year-olds. Yeah, I'm pretty happy about it. I'm pretty happy that I skipped the McDonald's and American Eagle phase of jobs. It's the worst phase. I promise you it's the worst phase. <laughs> um, so you said that you wanted to flip houses later on in life. Um, but you also mentioned that you played sports up until high school. Why did you stop playing sports? Um, 
Well, I mean, certain sports I never really enjoyed. And the one that I did enjoy football, I was really bad at. I had like a really late growth spurt. So I was the kid that was like three feet tall, 60 pounds. And I was really bad and they didn't know what to do with me. So they just stuck me at nose guard. I got pummeled by everybody every day. So that was the, the sport that I enjoyed playing the most, but it was a pretty brutal time. So, and we were the worst team in the league. Like, I don't think we won a single game, like the entire time I was playing. And so eventually I just, I just stopped going. <laughs> totally, totally get that. And coaches do do that. And it's so dumb. And especially when you have, I went to a school where it was uh, seventh grade through sophomore year. Because uh, it was a brand new opening and we didn't have enough kids in the area to fill out the senior and senior and junior classes. So we were playing with seventh graders on our varsity team up against the other high school, like the 1A and 2A high schools in the area and just getting just wrecked, dude, like 55 to nothing wrecked every single week. And it wasn't until the year after I left that they were actually a relevant good football team. But it sucks when you're on literally the worst team in the state. Yeah, I, I think that I got like the first participation trophy ever. They called it the the most heart trophy, I guess, because <laughs> I got like beat in the ground and kept coming back. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I got like the first participation trophy and I'm pretty happy about that. It's my only sports trophy that I that I own. <laughs> well, that counts for something. For sure. <laughs> So, all right, let's, let's move on to your day-to-day stuff. So you mentioned that you have your nine to five, that you work Monday through Friday, and you said that you like frequent the gym. So is that something that you do because you care about your fitness, because you just want to like have a six pack, like when you go to the gym, what's your goal there? Um, after high school, I got like really overweight. I was, I'm like six foot and I probably weighed like 260 pounds. Um, and I stayed like that for like two years. So my original goal was just to lose a whole bunch of weight. I like went on the keto diet for a year, um, lost 60 pounds. I generally frequent now around like 205. I like go up and down a couple, but like, I don't, I don't move a whole lot. Um, so these days when I go to the gym, it's really, there's like a indoor basketball court there. So I'll go early enough in the morning to where I can go and play some basketball and, um, you know, have a little bit of fun doing cardio and then lift weights. So it's really just to maintain because, you know, I don't want to be 260 pounds again. Yeah. I was, was going to say that, it, you know, maintenance of that, that's like, that's the best goal that you can have. I think once you're past 20 years old. Yeah. And like I said, the, the gym I go to, they have all different options. Actually, it's called one life fitness. I don't know if you have something like that, but there's like a basketball court and a lap pool and, um, like turf and punching bags and all that stuff. So, um, you know, I really just kind of go and, and do some cardio that I actually enjoy. And, um, I think it's a nice way to start my morning. So it just keeps me feeling nice and lets me feel a little bit better about the extra cookie or, chipotle that i'll eat later in the day because we're definitely getting <laughs> chipotle later in the day we all know it <laughs> absolutely so and, and i was gonna say that i i go between about 215 and 225 pounds or so but i probably have a slightly different build from you and uh, when when i go to the gym i've always been a 
heavier lifter. I, I haven't really ever done cardio. I was a lineman for, I don't know, like seven years or something like that until they put me in tight end. And so my, my frame is just bigger. So for me, going to the gym is more about bulking because I know that my, like I, I had some bad drug problems a while ago, like when I was <laughs> like in college, I had some bad drug problems and I had some bad habits like donating plasma twice a week. And I weighed 160 pounds. I think I lost like 60, 55, 60 pounds out of high school just because I was making very, very bad life decisions. And getting out of that situation and then being able to go to the gym and bulk back up. That's always been my motivation is just to fill out my frame. I, I might be a little bit overweight here and there, but most of it is just trying to fill out a larger frame because when I was 160 pounds, I did not look good. <laughs> it was bad. So when, when you said earlier that your job affords you the free time to play DFS, what do you actually do at work? Like what's a day-to-day thing for you for your nine to five? Um, so I come in, um, depending on how many settlements closed the day before actually decides like how much work I have for the day. Um, so if we have three settlements that day, then I have to send out, um, three pack, they're called packages. It's just all of your documents and everything that you would assign at the table that goes to your lender, making sure everything's smooth and everything went the way it was supposed to, um, sending out all the money for the previously owned bills you had, make sure that your mortgage is paid off before you switch it over to the new buyer. Um, yeah, and it's kind of scanning into our system. It's it's really just cleaning up everything and making sure that when the new buyer gets into your old house, that you get your money and, and they get the house they're supposed to get and everything goes smoothly and nobody has to be on the streets for a couple of days. Yeah, that'd be, that'd be pretty bad if somebody was on the streets for a couple of days. Yeah, uh, it actually, um, not to me, but it, it happened. Somebody that was in in a week or so ago said the last time that they sold their house with somebody that wasn't us, uh, the settlement got botched and, and they actually didn't have anywhere to be for like two or three days. So like it, it does happen. Um, but yeah, so because it's um, really day-to-day with how much I have to do, you know, there's some days that I can put a little bit of extra into DFS around my lunch or maybe that I would get off a little early and, and be able to come home and start on, you know, that process a little bit. And that's, that's a really nice perk of a nine to five job like that, I think. Well, and one of the things that's underrated about having a nine to five, specifically a nine to five, a Monday through Friday, nine to five, is that you know exactly or at least what your time constraints are going to be the majority of days. Whereas you working a nine to five, you know that you can get up in the morning, you can go to the gym, you can go to work, you'll get off. And then you have around two hours before lock, or you'll get off a little bit earlier, have three hours for lock, yada, yada. But there are a lot of people that with their job, they, they don't have that stability. They'll maybe work four days, one week of varying hours between 8 a.m. and 10 p.m., you know, if you're a server or something like that. And that kind of thing, I think that you are very lucky in terms of DFS to have that 9 to 5 and that stability of those hours. I absolutely agree. And it's also a 9 to 5 computer job. So I also have access to a computer pretty much 24-7, which I think is also a large advantage over some of the people that, um, 
you know, have to do a lot of their uh, lineup building and research off of their phones on the go. And I mean, I imagine you have a supervisor, right? Yeah. Do they know that you play DFS? Do they know that you like are oftentimes having like something up in regards to sports while you're at work? Yeah. Um, it's kind of like a thing where as long as all of my stuff's done, like I said, because it's very um, day-to-day on how busy I am, that as long as everything's finished, that I'm okay, especially if I were to like clock out and just stay there or, or something like that, which, you know, if I'm really doing nothing, I oftentimes do. Um, but there's some days that I'm, I'm really, really busy and, and I don't get to touch anything until you know, five thirty when I get home. That's such so. a good situation though. I, I mean, I think that a lot of people would be envious. It, it, it's about as close as you can be to a situation like myself, where you have pretty much unlimited access to the information that you need to find success in DFS. Yeah. I, I think that it helped me a lot. Um, I've actually only been playing DFS seriously for um, a little less than a year. Uh, the end of February will be one year. And I think for the short amount of time, I've found a decent amount of success. And I, I really think that that's one of the big reasons. When you say that you've only been taking it seriously for a year, how long have you been like actually playing? I mean, even seriously or not? Um, I don't know. I mean, a couple of years, I guess. You know, when I was younger, after I turned 18, it was like legal for me. You know, I just get on on Sundays on the football days and I only played football for that time. And, you know, I'd put $10 on and throw it in the big $10 contest and win $10 and 10 cents four weeks a year. <laughs> and, um, and that was about the extent of it. I didn't actually do any research or anything at that time before all of this, I actually, um, I wrote fantasy football articles and like regular fantasy football. So I felt like my football knowledge, that was in air quotes, um, was enough to win me money in, in daily fantasy sports. Um, but it really wasn't. <laughs> no, it's way harder than that. But, I, I mean, it does give you a decent base as to the the knowledge and the process that you need to find success. So, I mean, at least you had that. I, I think that too many people go into it. And like you said, everybody starts with football. And if you're writing about fantasy football, at least you understand the things that need to happen for somebody to be successful in fantasy football in daily. Yeah. Um, I focused on like um, sleeper picks and waiver wire picks, which is why I felt like it would translate well, because I was already looking for those underlier players that might get missed. Um and I mean, for somebody that really had no idea what they were doing, I did like decent enough. Like I'd hit like 50 bucks here or there. Like I never won anything huge, but you know, I never went broke playing either, which, you know, a lot of people surprisingly do, you know, get kind of caught up in it and you know, maybe go a little too far with what they should be playing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I managed to stay away from that without knowing anything else about um, actually actual DFS, like correlation and correlations and, um, like optimized lineup building and probabilities or anything like that. Well, we can call that a success. Um, let's, let's move on to this next part of this, of 
what do you do? Like you, you have your nine five and you have your process for DFS, but you still have the weekends. So what else are the, are you doing other than just work in DFS? Like what takes up your free time? Um, I kind of go on and off about video games. You know, I'll find a game occasionally that'll like really suck me in and I'll spend a lot of my free time doing that. Um, but outside of that, um, my girlfriend and I live together. So, you know, her and I on the weekends, a lot of time take like little day trips or something. Um, I'm a big like movie and TV show person. So, you know, sometimes I'll just waste an entire day binge watching a TV show. That's not very often, but I really enjoy it when I do do it. Um, I like chess. I spend, I spend a lot of time actually studying old chess games and everything. Um, chess has always really interested me. I dragged all my friends into playing chess with me. My, Basketball. Uh, my friend ahead, Maya and I. No, you're good. Uh, my friend Maya and I used to have a chess board that we carried around in a backpack. And we would just like take it out when we were somewhere. We took it out at a party once at like a college party and just started playing chess <laughs> on the ground. So I, I identify with that. Yeah, that's great. I actually, I just got a really nice like Game of Thrones chess board for Christmas. It's all like resin and, and the pieces or like the big, heavy, like sturdy pieces. It's really nice. Oh, that's sick. Um, um, but can, continue on. You were saying that you play basketball too. Yeah, when it, when it gets nice out. Over the last like year or two, I've really taken up basketball. I don't actually like to play games. I just enjoy shooting. You know, the actual like technical aspects and the skill it takes to, to actually just shoot a basketball well really intrigued me. So I took the time to become above average at it. I wouldn't quite say I'm good, but good enough to enjoy it. <laughs> um, yeah, and that's, you know, for the most part, that's about it. I really like to hike and stuff. So when it gets nice, I do some of that. You know, the Appalachian Trails are over here in Maryland and, and things like that. Um, so it it really just depends on on the weather. Right now, I've been I've been playing a lot of video games since it's winter and cold, and I don't want to be outside. I understand that it snowed like for four days straight here in Colorado, and I have not been playing as much video games lately, but I do a lot of the same things. Play a lot of video games. My fiance and I like to go shopping and everything like that. So I, I totally, your life parallels mine pretty well, except for the <laughs> fact that I don't go to an office to do computer work. I just have my computer at home. So I, uh, I identify with all of that, dude. Yeah, I know that you're also a cat guy. Um, this last weekend, I actually drove... Uh, 40 minutes to go to a cat cafe. Oh, my yeah. girlfriend took me as a surprise. She's allergic to cats, so I can't have one. But she did take me to the cat cafe um, where there was 51 cats, and I stayed there and played with cats for like two hours. So that was, that was a pretty great day. That's fucking incredible. That is fantastic. <laughs> and we, we have a, uh, a cat cafe here in Denver. It's down on Tennyson Street, which obviously nobody knows what I'm talking about right now. But <laughs> we we like to go there every once in a while. There's a vegan restaurant down there that we went to a couple weeks ago and spent some time at the Cat Cafe. And, it, you know, if anybody is listening to this right now and you want to just go and play with some cats or, like, see some adorable cats doing adorable cat things, but you yourself don't have a cat, find a Cat Cafe because they're awesome. And you can just get some coffee, you can get some tea, you can go hang out, you can go pet a cat for a little while. It is exceptionally therapeutic. Yeah, it was, it was really nice. I would absolutely 10 out of 10 recommend. Oh, hell yeah. 
Hell yeah. Well, yeah. That, I mean, you sound like a pretty regular 23-year-old dude living in a place where you can go to the mountains. I, I think that all, all that makes sense. Um, let's, move, let's move forward into some of your thoughts about the fantasy industry in general. Uh, we've been talking a lot about how you approach DFS and where your process comes from and, and where your free time comes from and all that stuff. But what what first attracted you to fantasy sports in general? Was it, you, you mentioned that you were writing fantasy football articles. What got you started into that? Um, yeah, so as far as the fantasy football articles and everything, it was really just my, my want to help people um, get better. It's something that I really enjoyed at that time. Um, fantasy football was something that I really looked forward to every year. I love football season. Um, DFS has kind of turned that down for me a little bit. I don't exactly uh, love watching football. I'm also a Redskins fan. That probably contributed to this year of me not enjoying watching football. Um, but I forget where I was going with that. But, yeah, I just um, – I. I really wanted to help other people enjoy something that I enjoyed so much. And I also, you know, do a little bit of content for DFS now and it's, it's the same thing, you know, something that I thought that I became pretty good at that, you know, isn't an easy thing to do. Um, Helping other people just get to where I am so that hopefully they can um, be a pro or whatever they want to do with it one day. And that's, you know, I, that's why I'm in the industry is because I didn't, I originally, when I started, I was writing (laughs) articles that were way too long on the Roto-Grinders free blog, uh, just because I thought that I had a good way of breaking things down. I thought that I had the knowledge to help people. And ever since then, it's always been about helping people in, in every aspect. It's really the only thing that, uh, drives the things that I do. I, I think that, and I mentioned this with the, with Cardi last week that you really have to choose between whether you want to be a content creator or whether you want to be a professional player. And I don't really think that you can do both super effectively. There are people in the industry like the Drew Dink Myers and, um, you know, Jeff El Jefe is, is very good in terms of being both a writer and a player. Drew is very good at both providing content and being a fantastic multi-enter player, but there are not very many people that can do it. And I think that a lot of people, when they look at somebody, they, they want to say, oh, well, why would I listen to this person's results? Or why would I listen to this person's advice when they aren't taking down six figures every other week? And it's not really about that. I, I think that so many people have that misconception about the industry of content providers having to be phenomenal players as well, because you, there are like maybe 1% of people that are very, very good at both. Yeah. I kind of think that the people that are good at both um, tend to do more podcasts and things that the people that actually have to sit down and write or crunch numbers like you and Derek Hardy and do all those things just don't really have time Um, you know, to make 300 lineups and also write an entire article in two different sports and um, put out 
six different uh, sheets for everything. So I feel like the ones that are really successful at doing both, um, I've kind of noticed that they really stick to podcasts and live streams and uh, being able to just, you know, talk and do spoken word, which is a lot faster than, you know, those other content pieces. And I mean, I did say earlier that I, I, I guess I'd like to do DFS all day, but I would prefer actually to do content full time um, because, but yeah, because, um, you know, it really is gratifying even, you know, I, I'm at a smaller site. I don't know if you've heard of it. Uh, Win Daily with um, David Jones and Jason Marazzi and um, Phil Nasons and you know, those couple guys. Um, you know, nothing huge like number ball or anything, but if I have a losing night, but people use my information and win money, it makes mm-hmm. me feel better than if I have a winning night. So I would like to chase that feeling and that side of things more than the money involved with um, I think that's being a professional super player. admirable. And I think that a lot of people would disagree with you, <laughs> but um, a lot of people disagree with me on that too. Uh when so when you play, are you more of an optimal player? Like, do you prefer to play with optimally built lineups, like using an optimizer or stuff like that, or are you more of a contrarian player that looks at ownerships and leverage and stuff like that? I'm a contrarian player. Um, when I first started, I tried playing cash games, but it's just it's not in me. You know, the chess and the stocks and all that. I think that I'm a very strategy based person. So just playing what's popular and what everyone's playing was never um, my style. So like I'd have like this like 0.8% owned person in a cash game. So like even when I was winning, I wasn't really doing it right. Um, so I, I, I've taken a full only GPP approach and a lot of the decisions I make are ownership based and ceiling based and uh, salary based and, you know, all the things that, that, I was going to say that, you know, analytic people, you know, look at, um, which is the approach that I kind of have leaned yeah, on into taking. I've said for a long time that GPPs are a better um, a better place to put your money for amateur players. And that was kind of a hot take like a year and a half ago. But now I think people are kind of starting to agree with me a little bit more on that just because of the constraints that you have as a cash game player and the, the losses hurt more and you don't get as much upside out of your wins. And I I mean, I could go into that. I I could do a full on podcast an hour long, just talking about that. So I, I mean, I'll get into that later, but I, I agree that I think that it's right for most amateur players to play GPPs and to um, play the best plays in their own right, rather than, playing the best consensus plays because everybody has a different point of view. I I mean, you last week uh, doing well in a PGA contest because you played people who you thought were the best plays, but were not the consensus best plays. And in cash games, you have to look at the consensus best plays. You have to look at uh, the best way not to lose. Whereas in GPPs, you are looking at the best way to win. And if you think the best way to win is playing Pat Perez, and other people don't, then that gives you an edge up on the rest of the field. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot of talk about like the edge and DFS disappearing. 
because of optimizers and everything, but I really don't think so. I think that cash games have became harder. I think that for a casual player that's not playing in the really top dollar um, single entry cash games that they're, they are um, getting harder and, and that, um, that size of field money. I think that focusing on, on GPPs, even like three max or single entries have really became a better way to manage your money than building a bankroll, as they say, yeah, through cash and games. There are other ways to look at things like that as well. There's the hundred man contests over on FanDuel, which are kind of a mix between a GPP and a cash game. There are, you know, like, um, what the three man contests and stuff like that, five man contests where it's more of a poker style of winning. And I, I just think that if you don't have upside in your wins, then you are never going to be a winning player. I, it, it doesn't matter how much volume that there are so few guys that can grind out cash games and actually make a living doing it. And GPP is definitely, I think where um, the edge is actually still to be had in tournaments when when you are looking at the way that the industry is going right now, do you think that pro players are having an easier or a harder time with the way that the industry has kind of evolved? Um, I think some of the pro players, like Osimo, who takes um, a little bit of a different approach to his um, MMEing, are are doing a lot better, maybe not better, but just as well, but that the, um, the pro players that don't understand how to use an optimizer beneficially, or, um, even just to, you know, use it in their research are kind of falling behind a little bit because, you know, whether you like it or not, optimizers are becoming a huge part of DFS. And, um, you know, I think that there's good ways and bad ways to use them. And if you're good at using them in any way, then there's still an edge. And if there isn't, then that you're is falling behind. That's a way to look at it. I personally think that optimizers, um, I, I don't use optimizers very often in terms of building my actual lineup, but I do use optimizers very often in seeing what a lineup should look like for the day. And that's I, yep. I know another company that does something very similar where they will use an optimizer to put together what is the optimal lineup based on projections. And then they'll just make a couple tweaks here and there. They'll say, all right, well, this guy's going to be 45% owned and there's another person who's pretty close to him. So I'm just going to play him instead. And they only change one or two players. Um, and I, I do kind of, the, the same thing, except I will look at what the optimal lineup should be, quote unquote, should be, and then say, all right, well, it's saying that I should be paying down at point guard, paying up at center, paying up at small forward. Uh, I am going to do that, but I'm not going to use the chalk options. If there's going to be somebody that's going to be 80% owned, there's no way that I want to play that person. So I, I think that you're right that optimizers are still relevant and will continue to be relevant and will continue to be one of the things that you need to understand how to use, but it does not necessarily mean that you need to be playing optimal lineups. Yeah, that's, that's essentially what I was saying. Um, for me on most days, 
using a, an optimizer, it's kind of like a chalk check throughout the day. Um, I'll just run, you know, a hundred optimal lineups um, with no constraints or no rules set or anything else and see what it's giving me and who I'm getting the most of and, and what the value player is that I'm getting 75% of and kind of take stock in, you know, the, the optimal plays that the optimizer is spitting out so that I kind of have an idea of those ownerships and, and those players in my head to um, measure against that, how successful I actually think that they will be. And yeah, even just using optimizers in a small setting like that, um, I think is an edge where, you know, some people refuse to use optimizers at all, but without even making 150 lineups or anything else, you know, there's a lot of really helpful things that optimizers do. They build up the, uh, the idea, the the canvas for what a lineup should look like for the day. And, and you know, there's going to be times when the optimizer is wrong just because people don't have certainty based on um, things like minutes in the NBA. That's generally where you're going to see a lot of times the optimizer is going to be wrong. Somebody like, um, I don't know, Lonnie Walker today is a pretty good example. Uh, he's super chalk in the industry and, Maybe not super chalk, but he's very chalky in the industry, and it's because he it, he should be getting the vast majority of the minutes for DeMar DeRozan, who is out. But in a situation like that, uh, maybe not with Lonnie Walker specifically, but when a backup takes over a starting role and we don't know what their actual role is going to continue to be, because he won't be DeMar DeRozan, and he won't be treated like DeMar DeRozan. His minutes are not going to be in the 38s um, the majority of the time, and there's a lot of uncertainty on that. And I think that that's where optimizers can be wrong. Yeah. Um, I think definitely when you're, you're getting a player in like 50, 60% of your optimal lineups, when you're running a hundred and it's somebody that you don't think has a, um, this is, I guess just like a baseline, but if you don't think it's somebody that has a 50% chance to be successful, then, um, you know, that's something that, you know, you, in general, probably wouldn't want to play. Um, but I like taking chances on guys like Lonnie Walker when mm-hmm. nobody's playing him, you know, when he's not popping up in it at all and, you know, that, that kind of thing. I just – I really think that, that optimizers have a um, a large hand in what DFS is going to look like in the, in the future. And, and learning how to use them is – uh, paramount to being a successful Let's player talk about in the future. That future. Why don't we? Uh, what do you think that the future holds for fantasy sports? And do you think that sports betting is a more lucrative thing to care about right now? I think that if you're a good DFS player or even an above average one, it's not a more lucrative thing. But if you're um, struggling playing DFS, that uh, more limited outcomes and the like more information that is available, I guess not more information, but more narrow information that's needed to bet on a singular game instead of all the players involved, that it can be more lucrative for certain situations. I think I agree with that. Um, I, I think that that is why people will generally find a bit of uh, more success in the middle of like betting games rather than trying to bet individual people. Uh, and, and obviously, and I, I've talked about this a couple of different times where DFS is really just putting together a parlay of different players and saying that they're all going to hit their over. 
So if you can do that with one player, then you're going to have more success than trying to do it with 10 players. Yeah, I also think that betting on an entire game kind of takes um, the large amount of variance out, at least for a lot of sports, um, that is kind of standard in DFS. Um, you know, betting on one human being being at the top of their game um, for that given day and beating the other human being across for them. Um, I just think that that's a lot of variance. Well, it is a lot of variance, but you know, when you're betting on an entire team, beating an entire team, you know, the better one will usually win or, um, you know, the one that's in a better situation, I guess, like a better offense playing a better defense in a football game, you know, that's, that's kind of standard stuff that, you know, there's not a lot of whole lot of variance involved. And I think that, you know, um, I guess lower win totals or lower amounts of money can still be profitable. You're more likely to go 70% winning um, straight up bets than you are to have a 70% win weight win rate in DFS. Totally right about that. Um, when when we're talking about DFS for the future, do you think that DFS is going to continue to grow and continue to get more popular, or do you think that we're kind of reaching a plateau on it? Um, I think that at least for a couple of years it will be. I would expect regular fantasy sports like regular fantasy football to die out first. Um, you know, like those high-stakes fantasy football players eventually switching to DFS and and kind of taking the money aspect out of regular fantasy sports first and then if you know if a product would come out that would um you know give you the same incentive of large amounts of money but have it based more around sports betting instead of singular players were to come out then that might be um the the route where we would see DFS start to fade out a little more. It's an interesting way to put it. I, I think that there are a couple apps that have been trying to do that. Um, like monkey knife fight or whatever the hell that, that, that app's name is uh, where it's like, you're essentially picking the overs and unders on props and parlaying them together uh, as a sort of DFS. And I, I'm pretty sure it's called thrive where you are doing kind of sports betting contests and and stuff like that. Those are kind of starting to come up now. And I think that now is probably the right time for them to come up. This is the right window of opportunity where people are interested in both DFS and sports betting as it's becoming legalized across the country. So uh, I, I am not sure that those kind of companies are going to have wild success. Uh, it is something that I think interests DFS players. I think that a lot of people, because like you said, it's easier to just pick the over or the under in the game rather than picking who hits the home run. And I think that people are going to be intrigued by things like like Thrive, where it is kind of sports betting picks. Um, but I'm not sure that people will continue to be interested in it after sports betting is legalized across the country, because why would I do that when I don't have to get, you know, raked into the ground by a company like thrive to put down my action on the day. Yeah. Um, I think that maybe at least for a while that, um, at least like the cash game players could maybe switch from DFS to something like that, where, 
you know, I think that your chance of winning goes up a good bit, but that large prize pool that a lot of the casual players and a lot of the GPP players are going for isn't an option. So I think that, you know, the, the, the guys or players losing money in cash games frequently could start to look more for prop picks and stuff like that, but that on the current prize pools and everything on those sites that they can't compete with the um, large field GPPs for excitement and that sweat factor that the casual players that actually drive everything um, are looking for. Yeah, and we we talked earlier about how the, the big prizes up top are the only things that keep a lot of the big players afloat is hitting those huge prize pools, and that's why the very top-heavy contests matter. Um, we will move on a little bit farther to this into – whether you think that you will continue to be in the fantasy industry in the next couple of years and what you think you'll be doing in the fantasy industry and like, let, let's say in the next one or two years. Um, I would say yes. I don't know that um, I would, I mean, whether we're talking playing or, or content makes a difference. Um, but as far as content, I don't know if I'll be doing all the sports that I do now. Right now, I've been doing NBA, NFL, and MLB this year, um, and it's been pretty exhausting. Um, you know, the content that I do, I actually do most of it for free, um, just helping people because I enjoy it. Uh, but I've gotten now to where, like, I need, like, a day or two each week to kind of relax and <laughs> and unwind a little bit. So I don't know that two years from now, if I haven't, made way in the content industry world if I would still be doing all sports or if I would just drop back to NBA, which is my favorite to play. Um, but I think that as long as the DFS sites are still relevant, that I would still be playing um, just as much as I do now, if not. Is there anything else that you would want to be doing in the industry? You've said that you wanted to be a content creator, but if you had the choice between being a pro player where you were making your living from playing or being a content creator, which one would you choose? Um, if I'm making my living from, from doing content still, I would prefer to do content. Um, you know, as long as I was still able to play, because I, I enjoy playing. It's not even about the money for me. I just enjoy um, pitting the research that I did on the day against everybody else and and seeing where I come up. So, I, you know, I really enjoy the numbers and playing. So as long as... Um, I would still have a little bit of time to do that than I 100% prefer doing content. I think that that's how a lot of people feel as well. It's about the joy of playing and it's about the challenge of putting yourself up against other people and seeing if you came away on top. I, I think that a lot of people identify with that. Yeah. Um, I always told myself that um, when I always, but when I started that, if I could get it to where I didn't have to deposit money regularly, that I would keep playing. And I've at least gotten myself to that point, which was my goal. So, you know, as long as I keep doing that and I'm not, you know, going in the hole for DFS or anything, then I would say that I'll be playing long-term. What is one piece of advice that you would give to people out there? Um, as a player, I would say to keep looking to improve your process and to make small goals. You know, if you're just starting, um, maybe just look to be 
profitable in your first month, don't don't swing for the fences right away and just expect to win $100,000 because you saw a Twitter screenshot where somebody won $100,000. Um, but even as you become a better player and your goals get bigger, to make sure that you continue to um, tweak your process and see where you can get better and maybe even be as good as the field or, or pass the field. And, you know, just to play smart and keep playing. As a content creator, I would say that, you know, if you're wanting to get into content, um, be prepared to do it for a while for free, even if you're really good at it. So make sure that you love doing it because it's mentally exhausting and um, it's it's hard work. It's like working another job on top of your job that you already do, but it's very rewarding and worth it if you love to do it. I agree more with that. Absolutely could not agree more with that. Uh, do you have anything cool coming up that you wanted to talk about that you wanted to maybe shout out at the end? Um, not really. <laughs> um, this was kind of the thing that I've been looking forward to for the last two weeks since we talked about it. So, um, no, I I'm, I'm think I'm okay on the right, shout out cool. front. Well, this is the thing that you were looking forward to for the last three years of your life. So that's good. I'm glad that we got to this point. <laughs> um, thank you so much for being on the podcast with me and like coming to hang out and talking about your experience in the industry and kind of giving people some background. Um, I, I hope to be able to continue to have more and more people that are from a whole bunch of different kind of walks of life. You know, I, I think that it's important to hear your point of view as somebody who works a nine to five and somebody who has a process down that has proven to be at least relatively successful for yourself because it shows that other people out there can still achieve success, even if they aren't going to be able to sit at home for eight hours and study minutes rotations and stuff like that. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. Um, again, my name is James McCool on, tw on Twitter. I am Pater underscore DFS. Uh, this has been the Building the Baseline podcast episode two with David Hess. Thanks everybody for listening. But I actually... When you tagged me on um, just that I was going to be on it at all, I think I got like like thirty seven new followers that That's day. Awesome. It's really ridiculous, including some like pretty like big people, like like Brit from Roto Grinders and um like a like a couple like big content creators like followed me. I was like, wow, that's crazy. All I'm doing is talking on a podcast about my life. Something <laughs> that I will tell you is uh, because I started out kind of the same way that you did um, when you open yourself up to conversation and when you open yourself out to routes to find opportunity, even if you are the one looking for opportunity, opportunity will find you. And you mentioned that you are writing right now and that you are putting out content right now, but you're doing it a lot for free. And I'll tell you that as long as you continue to interact with people, if you like respond to people on Twitter, even if those people don't follow you or like you put out good content or you say to other people, you know, what you think about the things that they said, the more routes that you open up for opportunity to find you, the more opportunities are going to find you. So make sure, you know, I'll tag you on this and I'll like blast you. And hopefully as you continue to like post and you continue to grind and like you continue to put good stuff out in the world, good stuff will find you, dude.